from professional baseball in the minors to an autograph business, which turned into a forgery business, which turned into a prison sentence to now. We've got a story here today that you're not going to want to miss. It's super intriguing. You know, the the life lessons through sports, through business, you know, going through crime, prison, and everything after the fact. You're not going to want to miss this one. I promise you that. Our guest has quite the story, quite the journey, and he's sharing some golden nuggets, not only about sports, but about life in general. You don't want to miss this episode of the Game Time Guru. So, what time is it? Game Time Boost! This is the Game Time Guru Podcast, where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you, as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. My name is Shane Larson, host of the show. Big shout out to everybody who has tuned in for the last five and a half years. Massive thank you to all of you guys. It's uh, been a team effort from, you know, it started out as friends and family who were listening to my show, and it was just a few of them at the very beginning of this entire journey. And now we're in 97 countries. All 50 states of the U.S. have heard this show, and we continue to make strides moving forward. So major, major appreciation, you know, for, for everybody out there. So I just want to say thank you. If you guys could do me a favor, once you listen to this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you thought of the interview. Let us know what you think of the guest, what you think of his story, uh, what you think of the show, and hit that subscribe button because you guys know the drill. Um, you guys will be able to listen to, you know, future episodes as well as previous episodes. So take that time. Just want to say thank you, though, right now for all of that. Now, as we get into this interview I get to welcome on my guest who it's interesting. You know, I, I find my guest. A lot of people ask me, how do you find your guest, Shane? Sometimes it just happens to like, I'm just finding content creators that I enjoy following. And then I'm like, oh man, they actually have a good story. So this is another one of those situations. I'm scrolling through TikTok of all places. And there's kind of this niche of TikTok that I actually enjoy. And there's a reason for that. I have a lot of close people to me that have uh, served time in, in prison and I like to hear their story. So I come across a TikTok channel of our guest right here and I'm like, oh dude, I like this guy. I like his story. I like to hear this stuff. And then I found out more about his journey, what got him there. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to highlight today. So we'll talk about that a little bit, but he has a little bit of a sports background and we're going to learn more about uh, his sports background. We'll hear about uh, some of the times that he, you know, he did in, in prison and the time that he put in and now what he's going to plan to do moving forward with his life and, and everything in between. So I'm going to welcome on our guest, Cliff Panizic to the show. Cliff, thanks so much for joining us, brother. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Super cool for me. Like, I'm like, ah, oh, dude, he's like this TikTok viral sensation. And now I gotta I get to have the opportunity to to chat with you on my show, man. Um, everyone's probably gonna be listening to this like wanting to fast forward. And I'm gonna encourage everybody not to fast forward. They're gonna be like, oh, I want to know what was what was going on in prison. But I wanna I wanna take time for a second. Let's rewind the clock. And and before we even get to that point. I really want to talk to you about first and foremost your athletic journey coming up, like just as a as a kid and as a teenager and the sports that you were competing in, because that's a big piece to all of this. It's kind of part of your journey. So let's rewind the clock. Cliff, talk to us about your athletic journey growing up, the sports that you competed in, and when you actually started getting into athletics. Yeah, so you know, it's really uh it's it's my family. You know, I, I came up in a in a, a family full of sports. My dad was a, a 
three-sport athlete back in high school. Uh, he kind of gave up his athletic dreams uh, to serve in the Vietnam War. Um, you know, so I think he lived a lot vicariously through me and my athletic career. Um, so that was really pushing my family. So, uh, you know, as a, as a child and growing up, it was all three sports, baseball, football, basketball. Uh, and, you know, all the Little League stories is all, you know, the typical Little League stories. You know, you're a, a pitcher slash shortstop with Little League championships and all-star games and, and you know, all, all those type of stories. But uh, getting into, like, the high school age, um, it really transitioned just into baseball. I kind of gave up my basketball aspirations and, and focused solely on baseball. And that's, you know, as you know, that's that's what took me into the professional athletic realm. Um, but, you know, it's all attributed to my father for real and, and the work and dedication he put into my life and my athletics. And like I said, it's just a, a family, a family thing, a family upbringing. You know, you mentioned your father. Do you mind telling us like one of the biggest lessons that he taught you in regards to the athletic side of things, uh, what it takes to actually compete at a high level? So it'll, it'll, you know, it'll sound crazy. And, uh, you know, me and my father certainly had our, had our battles, uh, me growing up and, you know, there's probably more times I wanted to quit playing sports than that I care to even recall. Um, but the biggest thing with him is, you know, I realized there was never really good enough. You know, so that sounds bad in, in a sense, but it also makes you strive to always be better. And, you know, in the in the athletic realm and professional baseball, you know, there re never really is good enough. I was never good enough. So it's always that push and that and that drive to strive to get better, to be better, to train harder. Um, you know, and that's, you know, he, he reinforced, you know, it's, it sounds bad talking about it in, in this sense, but the negative was really reinforced a lot, but that's, that's how I grew up and I learned to deal with it. And it pushed me to always be better. And, you know, it helped me to achieve and get to the levels I did. For sure, man, for sure. You know, you talked about, you know, high school, you, that's kind of where you focused on one sport. I think that's where a lot of kids that get into, if they, if they plan on playing at the next level of anything, they typically around the age of 14 or 15, most of the time they start to focus on one uh, that they, they feel they're going to go into. I mean, you can play all the sports in the world, but eventually you got to put some time into it. If, if um, that's going to be the one that you focus on when you started making that transition to, you know, baseball was your main goal. Uh, what would you say a day was like for you in regards to training and practice? Like how much time were you putting in, in the high school days, Cliff, to try to get yourself elevated to be able to potentially play the, the professional level? You know, so, you know, in the high school days, it's especially being in, in Ohio, you know, so training becomes difficult weather-wise and everything, um, facility-wise, everything like that. But, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I am I was the guy that, you know, school starts at 7 a.m. I'm hitting the batting cage in the gym at, at 6 a.m. So I'm getting up at 5 a.m. to go to school and, and take some BP before classes even start. Um, you know, I was getting called out of school early to go hit the batting cages on game day before a game so it was it was constant baseball was my life you know full full all the way full and full and full all the way through 24 7 like that's that's what i live for school school kind of came easy to me both in, in high school and college so my focus was purely baseball i love that man so baseball is an interesting sport out of all the traditional sports like you mentioned the, the three main or the major ones i should say like football basketball baseball but it is the most unique in the sense of how the next level actually works you know, you hear people that are like, oh, well, he went pro right out of high school and he played through the minors or he went to college first and whatever. So I want to kind of break down your decision and what ended up happening after high school and the transition that you made, because there's some kids that end up going and playing college baseball and then some of them end up going on to the professionals. But it's not like 
football where you go high school, college, professional. Like there is a lot of uh, it's it, it's just it's it varies a lot in the sport of baseball. So what was your decision that you made and, and why did you make that decision? Yeah, well, I mean, truthfully, the decision I made was based on the fact that, you know, coming out of high school, I wasn't I wasn't a, I wasn't really a prospect. I wasn't a prospect at all. So I, you know, my career developed a lot later on. Um, you know, I was heavily recruited out of high school, some lower level schools, Division two, II, Division three, junior colleges. Um, but I wasn't a professional, professional caliber uh, player athlete at that time. You know, so I went the JUCO route. I played two years junior college. Um, after that, I still was not a, a professional level player. I transferred to an NAI school in Tennessee, um, and that's really where I where I developed. You know, I had made some swing adjustments, got stronger, got got in shape. Really, uh, my senior season, I was fourth in the country in home runs. I hit 21 home runs. Um, you know, but after having three mediocre years in college, like even that didn't really put me on the radar as a professional athlete or, or um, you know, to be drafted. So I went undrafted um, and I attended a free agent workout uh, for independent baseball, professional independent baseball in Detroit. Um, and I got signed out. Of, got signed out of that workout. There were 200 players, you know, kind of everyone who didn't get drafted, who still had pro aspirations from every every school in the area. Um and out of those 200 players, two of us got contracts. So that's kind of how I got my foot in the door in the professional baseball. But, you know, I just developed very late uh, in my career um, and figured it out very late, kind of in a situation back against the wall. Like, am I going to make it into pro ball by turning it around my senior year? Or is this where the dream ends? And, you know, back against the wall, King, things kind of fell in place. No, that's super interesting. What would you say is the differences between – we? I talk a lot about basketball because that's my sport that I that competed in and I coach basketball uh, for, for the club level. So I, I get to see a lot of, uh, you know, junior college, NAIA talk about basketball. But I want to talk about baseball. What was the main differences between NAIA and baseball and uh, junior college and baseball? Well, I mean, so, I, you know, the junior college I went to was in Pennsylvania. Um, so we're still not talking very high, high level on the junior college side. You know, we, uh, you know, we would take our spring trip down to Florida and, and truth be told, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're a month, two months into our season while we're just starting our season. So that's in their favor, obviously, but we'd go to go down there and get our teeth kicked in flat, flat out. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so the junior college baseball where I was at, you know, wasn't, wasn't great. It was competitive, but again, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't at that level yet. Um, as I transitioned into NAI baseball, which I went to, it was called Martin Methodist in Tennessee. Um, and we played some big time schools, which is like Trevecca, Cumberland, you know, national com contenders. And we beat Division One teams. We beat Division One teams, Division Two teams. So the difference really was, you know, everyone on my team kind of had a story. So whether it be they couldn't make grades somewhere else or they were from the local hometown, everyone kind of had a story. But it definitely didn't mean that the, uh, the level of competition was any worse. There were definitely – definitely some people in our conference that that could play and we had draft picks coming out of the conference every season um and it was like i said it was high level baseball for real that's awesome man it's just interesting because like every level is different and it's like every junior college is different and every naia is different like every experience is different if you could tell the athletes right now that might be listening to the story like let's say they're a baseball player in high school and they might be in the similar route as you maybe they're not the top dog but they do have some you know, skill to play at the next level, whether it be junior college or a lower level, um, you know, lower division, I should say, uh, for college. 
you know, what would you say to them in regards to what to expect? Like, what advice would you give them? Because it obviously works for you. Every level's different, but you can make the best out of the situation, which it appears you did. So what advice would you give to kids that might be in a similar situation? You know, the, the biggest thing would just be that, you know, if you truly feel like you can play and you have the potential to, to succeed at the next level, like, don't get down on yourself because of what school you're at or where you're playing ball. If you can play, they'll find you. So, you know, just put, put in the work, compete hard. You know, don't don't dog it because, you know, you're playing at some small-time school and you think nobody's watching or there might not be anyone in the stands. Like, go out there and compete hard and flat out if you can play, you can play. Even even my route, you know, I went, I went undrafted, but I got in front of the right people in this workout. And once they see you can play, you can play. And that's that's all it comes down to. You'll get a chance. I dig that, man. I dig that. I hope everyone's taking notes on that as well. So I always encourage the listeners, if you're a parent, a coach, a, an athlete yourself, or just somebody who's listening to the show because you want to hear some cool stories, rewind this, take notes, pause, whatever on your, on your cell phone. Pay, pull out the notepad on your cell phone. Take some notes on what Cliff just said right there. That's a, those are like big pieces. You're, you're listening to someone who has been there. You know what I mean? We can learn a lot of stories from people who have been there, the ups, the downs, and everything in between. So take notes on this. So, Cliff, as you get into the professional realm, this is where, like, quite honestly, as I read your story, by the way, guys, I'm going to put a link to that story um, on Sports Illustrated. There is a story about Cliff's whole journey, but I'd encourage you guys to listen to this interview first, then you guys can go and read more of the, the story on Sports Illustrated. Now they had an article that came out about his journey. But um, I was really intrigued by the – the professional side of things with baseball. Um, there's a lot of people who just the general public may not fully understand what minor league baseball truly is like. Uh, they, they might under, not understand the income. You know what I mean? They might be like, they don't realize that it's not lucrative. It is a grind. And these are guys that are growing into adulthood. You know what I mean? And you know, there's bills to still pay and the grind is bigger than ever. You're still out there competing at a high level, but you're not getting compensated the same way and such. So, I really want to dig into the professional side of things and and hear your perspective on that. So when you when you ended up getting signed and you went in there and you know you beat the odds, backs against the wall kind of mentality and all that jazz, talk to us about what that transition was like into the professional level and what your experience was like as a whole. Yeah, so you know my my rookie season I got signed uh, to the Can-Am League with the Sussex Skyhawks which we played out in New Jersey. Uh you know, and entering pro ball, you know, that's a whole different realm from college. So I'm, I'm just excited to be there. Um, and I'm, you know, on the, on the pay side, I'm getting paid $800 a month, but it's, uh, you know, it's cost covered. So I have somewhere to live. I have food, I have travel, like that's all taken care of. So, but the, the real thing I noticed right off the bat is, you know, now getting into professional baseball, it's a business, you know, so I have a catcher in front of me who's a veteran, um, had a little bit of major league time, a couple weeks, you know, but he's making X amount of dollars per month and I can't get on the field. So um, that, that becomes very frustrating. So I, I was relegated to a backup role, told I would transition in the starting role, never happened. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it had nothing to do with my stats. I actually ended up leading the league in at-bats per home, at-bats per home run. I had 47 at-bats at four home runs um, and, and, and hit 300 in my rookie season. But, you know, my playing time never expanded because they got to justify paying this guy X amount of dollars, you know, so that, that becomes very frustrating. Um, and then, as you know, that was kind of just my, my taste of a higher level of minor league professional baseball, the Can-Am league. And I got injured after that. Oh, talk about that. What, what injury did you, did you have? So, so actually really going back to my senior season, 
Um, I knew I had some shoulder damage. There was something going on. Wasn't quite sure. Um, had it checked out. Was told I needed an MRI and kind of just refused the MRI and basically told the doctor just make my shoulder quit hurting, which he did. So a couple cortisone shots later, made it through my senior season, made it in the in the pro ball. Got the shoulder checked out after my rookie season. I have two tears in my rotator cuff, torn labrum. So basically my shoulder was mangled um, and, you know, I had to have reconstructive surgery. Wow, dude. Okay. The reason I was intrigued by that is because I want to I kind of dive into how that impacted you in your professional career. The reason for that is I've had a guest on the show. His name is Max Hall, former uh, quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals. And, you know, he went through a – a really rough patch with you know drug addiction and so forth and there was a lot of things but he explained that it spiraled out of control after an injury uh, because of the fact that at the professional level it is a business and unfortunately like some guys aren't the top tier dudes and so they're trying to make a roster spot to make a living and then that injury is actually what derailed him and went down like a spiral because pain medications he was doing everything he could to just simply be okay so that the owners could see that he could play because if he didn't play he wasn't going to get paid they weren't going to they were going to release him so for the injury standpoint let's let, i guess continue on with the story there now people know you had a, a busted up shoulder completely torn out shredded shoulder talk to us about kind of what happened and transpired after that yeah so i mean re really looking back um the decision to have shoulder surgery was uh i feel like it was the wrong decision i, I look back on it um and as hard as it was to get my foot in the door the first time now that I had a shoulder surgery on my medical record, it was next to impossible. So I'd look back at the situation and think like, hey, I probably could have just had my shoulder continuously injected with cortisone until it just fell off. And, and that would have served me better in my professional career, which is medically as bad as that sounds, you know, at the time as a 23 year old kid, I'm, you know, I'm trying to pursue my lifelong dream. So I have the shoulder, shoulder surgery. I'm told, you know, I'll come back healthy, possibly healthier, be able to throw harder. Um, so I go through the rehab. It ends up being about a, a 12 month process, you know, prior, prior surgery, even with the shoulder damage while I was on cortisone, I'm throwing about 90 miles an hour. I come back after the surgery, I'm healthy, I'm stronger, I'm in better shape mechanically. I'm better and I'm throwing 80 miles an hour. So, you know, it's, it's hard to kick, kick your, kick the door and get your foot back in the door as a professional player that's throwing 80 miles an hour, you know, and so even even further along you know as i'm trying to get back in i had a, a private one-on-one -on -one workout with a regional cross checker from the indians really just to get some advice i worked out for him wanted to know what i needed to improve on to get into affiliated ball and at this time i was at this time i was 24 years old worked out for him asked him what i needed to do and he flat out told me he's like listen talent wise you're there He's like, but I can't sign you. You're 24, 24 years old with a medical record. And that's and that's the reality of it. Once I had my shoulder cut, getting into affiliated ball was was impossible. My goodness, man. That's uh how many uh, how many baseball players, especially in the minor leagues, do you feel maybe you can't name names, of course, but like do you think that, that happens quite frequently where they're battling that decision of like should I get surgery and not? And they probably do put it off, I would imagine, because I've spoken to athletes myself who probably put it off. But do you think that that's a battle going on mentally behind the scenes that a lot of people in the general public don't know about these athletes trying to make it? Do they decide just like not to go through a surgery and shoot it up with cortisone and just deal with it so that they don't run into a situation like you did? 
Yeah, specifically, you know, in, in baseball, because, you know, the throwing motion is such a, a unnatural human movement. Right. Like my, my guess, you know, I, it, it'd be hard, but it's a, a large percentage of the players have something going on, whether it be in their elbow, their shoulder, something like that. Um, and yeah, you just you just ignore it. I mean, I, I look back and as bad as my injury was two two complete tears in my rotator and a torn labrum. And I look back and I'm like, hey. Should have just shot it up with cortisone until my shoulder fell off till I couldn't throw a baseball anymore because at least I was there. You know, I was I was signed. I was under contract in the Can-Am League. I had a workout set up with the Phillies. They were interested in signing me. Once I make the decision to have a surgery, I get released, cancel the workout with the Phillies, you know, and that's it. And then I'm playing uh, – you know, I stuck around for another two seasons playing some very, very low-level minor league baseball, uh, professional baseball, whatever you want to call it, Pecos League, Continental League. Um, very low level type type operations that were being ran just trying to trying to hang on but you know once i had the shoulder surgery it was it was over with that's brutal man and and you know what's interesting i've talked about injuries on the show before i myself and this is by no means was i a professional baseball player or anything like that but even just like 2016 i had a shoulder surgery and i and i wasn't i'm not playing competitively in sports like that or anything like that but um i had to re repair my labrum and i decided to to get surgery on it. And I have always told people, Cliff, that I would never do that again. I retore it afterwards anyways, two years almost to the date. I was playing in a basketball game. I retore it, all the anchors that were put into my shoulder ripped right out. I felt the whole thing hurt like crazy. And I was like, and it's torn. And I'm like, you know, I'm still functional with it. I can still do what I need to do with it. There's certain things that I don't do anymore, but I would never do it again with surgery simply because of like the mental aspect of uh rehabbing it was awful for me because I couldn't move my arm and they just completely put me into a depression. I couldn't work out. I couldn't do anything during that time. And then secondly, I ended up retearing it anyway. So I was just like, you know what, what was the point of that? It just like wrecked me mentally. So anyway, I, I, I'm just curious like, you know, I'm just hearing from athletes like yourself, just different perspectives on injuries and, and how you've gotten through them. But as you moved forward, you did mention two years you played. I want to know, as we transition to the next piece of the story, um, which kind of goes into the to the autograph business uh, that you had had started, talk to us about why you started that. Was that because of like was that during your playing days still before you had given that up? Like, talk to us about where that kind of meshed in there and how that was even introduced to your, I guess, your career. Yeah, so it really it really started in college. Um, you know, depending on where I was at school, like when I went to school at Mercyhurst in Pennsylvania, it was a lot of traveling to baseball games, like for uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it was really just a side hustle, like, you know, get some autographs, flip them on eBay, you know, have some cash on hand to kind of, you know, survive the college life and, and be able to function and, and, and eat and, and whatever, you know, while, you know, dedicating my time to my career, while dedicating my time to practice and training and, and everything like that. Um, and then as it transitioned into, you know, professional ball, you know, it became more, more of a side hustle. So now, you know, like I said, I was getting paid $800 a month, my first season. Um, but then I also went straight into my shoulder surgery. So now my training regimen looks a lot different. It's, it's a lot, lot more hours. I got to rehab my, my shoulder while still being training, you know, still trying to do some type of uh, skill work as far as catching, hitting, whatever. Um, it's a lot of hours. Um, and it's a lot of cost, you know, so I have a personal trainer, gym membership, my baseball trainer, my baseball facilities, fees, everything like that. And we're not getting paid in the off season, you know, so where, where's this money come from? Um, 
and you know, I had a good support system and, and my family supported me in pursuing my professional career. But at, at some point, you know, as a man, like how, how do you support yourself? So that's really where it began. Uh, we called it uh, Athletic Connections, Sports Cards and Memorabilia. There was a group of us that kind of worked together and it was a lot of like travel on the weekend and, and hustle up some autographs, uh, whether it be some, you know, pro teams, college kids, anything like that, and, and resell them on eBay. And that's really how it originated and how it started. It was really just a, a way to survive you know, while still pursuing my career. Totally. And, and, and clarify for the listeners here at that particular point of this, those autographs, that was all authentic, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Like this, those were all authentic at that point, correct? Yeah. So if you look at my college career, uh, I graduated college in 2008, 2008. Um, So anything from like 2007, eight, nine, uh, trickling into 2010, that's all authentic memorabilia. It was completely legitimate. You know, hust- hustling it up, you know, putting in the hours and, and really running a legitimate business. Totally. Um, and then, okay, so this is interesting to me because as a businessman myself, like I just, I, I, I see, you know, how that could be potentially like open your eyes to like, oh man, this is a, like, this is a potential to be a, a, a really big business. But the, the problem that business owners run into is scaling it properly, right? Like scaling it, like how do you scale it, right? And then at the time, things have changed in just the last, 12 months in regards to nil right like right. at the time though you're probably navigating the waters of hey what are we allowed to do and what are these without getting these kids in trouble if they're not the professional ranks whatever i don't i can't speak for you but i'm sure there are some things there I, i've spoken to athletes myself that but prior to the nil deals that i mean they're signing autographs and getting paid on the table you got to navigate some waters and that is what it is well i guess discussion for a different day but at that time you're probably trying to figure out how, how do we scale this so what was going through your mind when and, and when did you realize like this is what we gotta we can take this full time you know it's it's been pretty good supporting me throughout this this journey but at what point did you realize like this could be a lucrative business that could you know help us out moving forward in my career uh you know really when i transitioned into the realm of of pursuing college football you know the college football realm is is has crazy value as you're talking about i mean obviously we see it now with the nil deals um that these these schools are making crazy amounts of money. The fans are crazy. So, you know, how do you capitalize on that? It's, you know, you're going out and finding players, um, you know, and like you said, paying them under the table to get what you need, you know, so players that aren't readily available or they don't have any merchandise on eBay, you know, that's who we're pursuing. So uh, whatever may have been 2009, uh, it was like Andomican Sioux. So we made a trip out to Nebraska and, you know, that was that was the target. And and that's how it became lucrative is traveling to places that other people weren't willing to go, honestly. Um, so that was a big trip in that season. And then obviously we transitioned into the story that ends up in Sports Illustrated, which is the trip to Alabama. Um, so as everybody knows, Florida was kind of the front runner to win the national championship that year. That's kind of where the Nick Saban era started. Um, you know, and there's no one down there. That's what that's where we headed and decided that was the most lucrative thing to do. And that's also where the story kind of took a turn. So with that, again, I'm going to put the link here in the description so people can read the story. But if as you're in Alabama, people are probably listening to this like, what do you mean he's in Alabama? What does that mean it took a turn? So do you mind explaining it without – I mean, you don't have to give all the details, but do you mind explaining like what do you mean by took a turn exactly? Right. So we, we went down to Alabama um, during Christmas break to try and draft the, the Alabama football team to get ready for the national championship game. Um and as a whole, you know, it, it was really successful. So we run into some players and, and we're paying some players. I ain't got to mention any names here. The, the article right. mentioned it. Um, 
you know, but we're trying to get team signed items and, and, and a lot of them, you know, we're talking 20, 30 team signed footballs, team signed full size helmets, you know, everything we could um, just to prepare for the national championship game. But uh, the problem we ran into is we couldn't come up on some, some of the key players. So like Mark Ingram was in New York for the Heisman trophy uh, ceremony. Uh, we couldn't find Julio Jones. Uh, we couldn't find Rolando McLean. Um, so, you know, what are these team items worth without these signatures, you know? And that's, you know, like I said, that's kind of where it took a turn. Um, and it actually, it wasn't me. It was my colleague uh, that kind of led me into, you know, the story and, and my crime and everything. But, you know, if we can't find these players, how do the signatures end up on the ball? He put them on there. So that's absolutely where where the crime took a turn. Or I'm sorry, where the story took a turn. But see, that's why I'm interested in this story because I can totally see. I know it sounds crazy. People will be like, well, why would you do it? But like you almost like I see why that would be done. Like because you just said it. Like what are the value of the balls without those particular signatures? Do you, do you have a, like a price point? Like how much would a, a football go that's signed by all the team, including those players? Like just to give people a perspective, how much would those go for back then? Right. So, you know, to, to add to what you're saying is, you know, while I'm running this business legitimately, my, my margins are not crazy huge. Okay. And this right. is, this is the biggest um, investment that I've, that I've made is taking this trip to Alabama. So we're, you know, in Alabama for 10 days, gas cost, hotel cost, product cost. You know, we were going down there with 30, 40, 50 footballs that, you know, that, that all costs money, $20 a piece. We're paying all the players. So all the players that come out or depending who they are, they're getting, $20 handshakes, $50 handshakes to sign these footballs. So now I'm heavily invested into what these balls are worth. You know, every time someone signs a ball, you know, it's it's money out of my pocket. At the top end, like with everybody on the team on the on the ball, you know, we're potentially talking anywhere from three to six, seven hundred dollars for a ball. Without these main players, Mark Ingram, Julio Jones, it's a crapshoot. It's hard to say what they're worth. You know, maybe a hundred bucks, but you know, I might be into the ball for a hundred bucks by the time I'm done paying everybody. Right. So when I take all all my all my profit from the entire season and kind of invest it into this trip, you know, it's kind of back against the wall. What do we do? Stick it out, stay some more days, spend some more money, try and find these guys, not really know what's gonna happen. You know, or like I said, it, it took a turn and, and the guy I was with threw the signatures on the ball and we had and we headed back. You know, everybody wanted to get home. It was Christmas break. You know, we're missing time with our family as well, you know, and that's that's just how it happened. Yeah, totally. And I appreciate you sharing that to kind of give some insight to the listeners because, uh, yeah, it may, it may, when you put a, a value to it and understand the opportunity cost, like what you're putting into this, you know, there's there's a reason. It's not just like, oh, a bunch of criminals just went out here, a bunch of hoodlums just doing this thing. No, like there's there's some stuff that goes behind the scenes. Like you've invested quite a bit of your own stuff in there. Um, so, Cliff, after this kind of – shifted that way obviously i'm assuming you guys probably saw the the potential there you're like oh dang like this this actually can work how did this continue to scale out uh to where it became a full-blown gig yeah so really that that conversation happened on the way back from alabama obviously yeah. like once uh once you kind of cross the line you know there's no really coming back from it i, I would say so that conversation happened and, and me and this guy uh, his name's Adam Bollinger. He's mentioned in, in the Sports Illustrated article. If you guys check it out. Um, so it really started with him. And we did a little bit of business on, on eBay. 
we kind of went our separate ways. Probably, probably lucky for him because he didn't get tied into this case at all. Um, you know, but once I was brought into it, like I said, there was kind of no no turning back. Um, so for a long time, you know, years, it was still, you know, the operation wasn't just uh, kind of like they make it out to seem like, hey, I'm sitting in a garage with a sharpie and signing stuff and selling it on eBay. You know, so it was still a lot of travel, a lot of tracking down real players. Um, you know, like following, following that trip, I went to Miami for the 2010 Super Bowl, but that's where it transitioned. So now it wasn't I was just going down there to get autographs. It was I was going down there to get autographs, but also take pictures of these players signing autographs so that I could recreate more and sell additional forgeries on, on eBay. And that's really where it started to transition. Um, so it operated like that for quite some time, which was, you know, kind of we would go get whatever, a couple Bryce Harper autographs. Maybe I got three or four sold eight or 10. So it was kind of just adding adding a, a layer of profit to, to the business. Um, but as more people kind of, my, my friends and surrounding people kind of found out slowly what was going on, um, they obviously wanted involved. And as I involved more people, it just snowballed, you know, to the point where, you know, it was no more legitimate autographs. It was only forgeries. It was a ridiculous amount of money. Um, and it, it just snowballed out, out of control to where it really couldn't end any other way than, than how it did. Do you, looking back on a clip, do you, when you were like, I guess the trip back from Alabama at that point, let's, let's rewind where you were at that. And that's where it kind of was taking that turn. Did you ever expect like at that point, did you understand the implications there? Like, did you say, like, did you know, like what could potentially be the case there? Sorry, you want, you want to run that back again? Oh, no. oh yeah. No, no, no worries at all, man. This is what happens when we record. It's all good. So, when you when you look back to the Alabama days, like when you were coming back from Alabama, and you said like that's when the conversation was had. There's no turning back. Did you actually understand the potential implications of those actions at that time? Did you think that oh I could go to prison for X amount of years for doing this, or I mean maybe you did know that, or did you just think okay I mean it might be a slap on the wrist? Did you ever see what could be coming down the road from that? So I mean, there's really two two ways to look at it. You know, I never envisioned it growing into you know, what became a, a multi-million dollar scheme. You know, when, when we're looking at the Alabama footballs, looking at, you know, turning a football that might be worth $100 or $200 into something that's three or 400 Or even when I went on, went on the Super Bowl trip, it's, you know, maybe I get one Adrian Peterson jersey and I sell three. So it's not, you know, you're not talking millions of dollars. You're talking hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. Um, so at the time, it doesn't seem that serious. But also, as it began to grow, you know, as, as any probably criminal would do, you know, I, I kind of knew what the implications were and, and did some research. And, you know, to me, I wouldn't say a slap on the wrist. Um, you know, I knew I was committing a really a, a federal offense, a, a mail fraud, forgery charge or whatever. Um, but to envision that six years in prison in, in, in the state of Ohio was in the realm of possibilities, uh, you know, I would say that never really crossed my mind. Like that didn't seem... Uh, to be in the realm of possibilities whatsoever. Totally, man. Totally. And it's it's crazy. I, I've got a lot of family members um, that like extended family that love sports memorabilia, right? They like they love sports memorabilia. They invest a lot of money into it. That because it's a pretty crazy business out there. I mean that's it's crazy. And now with like college athletes now legally being able to do this, it's becoming even more like insane out there people got websites everywhere athletes are selling everything so it's it's a big deal i know how much money people invest into this stuff my question for you cliff now be, having been in that business um how did you get around it like how i guess 
because there's like certain forms they have to fill to show that it's authentic, it's legitimate uh, before they're, they're willing to fork out the money that they are for certain plaques and jerseys and so forth. How, how did we get around that? There's really there's really no getting around it. It's it's pretty simple. We uh you know we created our own certificates of authenticity, which is you know simple to do on a program on Microsoft Works, Microsoft Word, whatever. It's very simple to create. Um, you know, but additionally, part of the problem with the autograph industry is, you know, I'm not going to mention companies' names just for you know legal ramifications, but the the companies that do a lot of authentication are complicit in it. You know, so a short story, you know, I, I had one of these companies come to my house to do a, an in-person authentication. I had about 3,000 items I wanted authenticated. Probably 1,000 of them were real. 2,000 of them were forgeries. Uh, at the end of the day, there were three items they turned down. Uh, and of those three items, one of them was actually authentic. Wow. You know, so, you know, but it's not conducive to them for them to come to my house and start saying everything's a forgery, they're not getting paid. You know, so if they want to come to my house and authenticate 3,000 items and and get paid whatever, roughly $10,000, $15,000, you know, they're going to pass them. And that's, you know, that's part of the, that's a big issue with the autograph industry to where it's to the point where, you know, I don't really care who it's authenticated by. If I don't see the athlete sign it in front of my very own eyes, I'd be leery of whether it's real or not. Totally. That I, I'm glad you said that because I, I would imagine you having the experience that you have would probably uh, make you a little bit, you know, apprehensive about buying something like that. Especially the the high dollar items. There's a lot of people that I, I know people are dropping thousands at times for certain particular items. So that's that's interesting to hear. And you know, Cliff, as you went through, how long did the business? scale out of, of the forgery business from front to back before uh, it all went down and you ended up getting, I guess you could say caught for lack of better terms, but before, you know, the feds got involved and, and whatnot, and uh, you got your sentence. So how long did that, that end up happening for? Uh, so really it started, it really probably started, I mean, it, it officially started with the Alabama trip, but for myself, okay. you know, it's really probably that, that Super Bowl trip to Miami in two, early 2010. So roughly February, 2010, uh, we, and we, ran uh till december 1st 2014 which is when uh, my house got raided out in nevada so roughly five five years start to finish about five years and when your house got raided and i again i'll, I'll encourage people to read the article but when your house got raided, like at what point cliff did you say okay like they got me yeah pretty pretty much uh you know so i had already kind of knew you know I, I didn't necessarily know when the end was coming but i knew it, it got to the point where it, it was scaled so big and there were so many people involved that there was really no other way it could end. You know, I, I had my own exit strategy of how to get out and, and, you know, some other things I wanted to do in life, but some other people I involved didn't, you know, so there's people that are really relying on the business to pay mortgages, make car payments to, to really survive indefinitely with no plans of getting out. So I, I knew, I knew the end had to be something along the lines of, of what happened. So, that morning, December 1st, uh, 2014, I opened the front door and there's about 14, 14 uh, cops, federal agents, whatever, standing outside my front door. And I already know what it is. So it was kind of a, a surreal moment, but really put in perspective what was going on. Heesh, dude, I can imagine. Like I, it's just wild. It's absolutely wild, just like the, the thought of it. It's almost like a literal, like, it's a real-life version of Catch Me If You Can, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like, ah. 
So I've heard, I've heard people say that quite quite often. Yeah, I bet you have. I bet yeah. I'm not the first who's ever said it, but it literally that's what it sounds like to me when I'm hearing your story and getting to learn more about the details. So Cliff, talk to the listeners about like maybe someone hasn't followed you on TikTok. I'd encourage everybody to do so. Go follow him on TikTok and his Instagram. I'll put the links here in the description as well so you guys can follow him. It's 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 actually really intriguing for me to to learn from your story. But when you got sentenced, talk to, talk about your sentence and what your feeling was like. I mean, you knew you had done something wrong obviously but did you feel like the sentence the time and everything that that came behind it like what was that you know a a good amount what did you feel did you feel like that was a uh, justice being served or did you think that was kind of extreme yeah you know so you know I, I i fully at this point in time I've, you know i've accepted responsibility for my my part you know in my crime and everything but uh the way the case was prosecuted you know it's the first time in u.s history it was prosecuted on the state level um, as a racketeering charge, you know, so instead of getting charged with forgery or mail fraud, like I would have on the federal level, I got charged with racketeering. Um, I was overindicted, you know, kind of quadruple charged for the crime. And I was facing 47 years on paper. Wow. Which, which is crazy. Right. Which, so, you know, that, that puts me in a situation where I can't really do anything, but, but plead guilty, uh, which again, it's not cause I wasn't guilty. You know, I, I certainly was guilty of some type of conduct, but the way the charges were stacked, like I, I don't believe I'm guilty of racketeering. You know, that's that's a, a crazy, um, crazy term to throw out there for a, a sports memorabilia forgery case. <coughs> Excuse me, but uh, you know, the sentence I got was the most severe in U.S. history by double. You know, so anyone who's kind of committed a sports memorabilia fraud in, in the past, and we're talking way more economic value than what was involved in my case. We're talking they got two, three, four years on the federal fed level. Um, and I'm getting six years on the state level, which you know, six years on the state level looks completely different than a white collar crime in federal prison. You know, so you guys probably know the story. You know Jordan Balford and Wolf of Wall Street, and you know, he commits a white collar crime and goes kicks his feet up in a white white collar fed prison for, for two years or whatever it may be. Whereas, you know, I get six years on a state racketeering charge. I'm going to the jungle for real, you know, so I'm not in there with white collar, you know, tax evaders and everything. I'm in there with murderers and rapists and, and gangbangers and, and everything. So it's really, you know, how they prosecuted the case and the residual effect of, you know, they don't realize what's really going on to it is, you know, the place they sent me is, is you know, that's what was not necessary in the sentence. You know, it could have been prosecuted differently to where, you know, it could have been a fake case. I could have got a mail fraud charge. You know, and, and not that that's a slap on the wrist, but it's a whole a whole different scenario than what I ended up going through. Oh, 100 percent. I'm sure there's like a lot of opinions in regards to like uh, so there's probably plenty of people out there. Ah, you deserved it. And then there's other people that are like, man, the justice system's kind of it, it's crazy. And, and like I said at the beginning of this interview, I've got I, I follow quite a bit of people from the, the prison stories. And the reason I do that is because I've had close friends of mine. Uh, I never was involved with any criminal activity, but I've had friends of mine who were, and I've heard similar things from them. And I'm not trying to take one side or the other here. That's not the whole point of this podcast, but you know, pleading guilty. Sometimes it's because of the, the types of charges that they're putting at you. Um, you kind of have to, to either, you got to bite the bullet for a lack of better terms. And I I've known people who've had to do that because it's either you do this or you do this. And it's like, sometimes they're like, I, I don't believe I'm guilty of this specific charge, but it's either I do that or I get screwed and I'm there for 20 plus years. And it, it kind of, it just kind of puts things into perspective. And, and then to your point, I mean, 
you're sitting in there. You're not at the white collar stuff, man. Like, like you just mentioned it all right there. And, and I, I want to kind of get your insight there too. When you went through prison, you did your time. I mean, you just got out and you're finishing up your, your sentence and everything in regards to all that. And again, I encourage people to follow you on TikTok, kind of hear your story there and see it. But while you're in prison, Cliff, what were your first, I guess, what were your impressions of prison when you went in there? Um, not having been around these types of guys in your life before, but now you're literally in your terms in the jungle. Like you're literally there. So what were, what were your uh, impressions getting into the prison? You know, it's, uh, you know, it's completely overwhelming to start that, you know, the whole process of getting uh, transferred in the prison, like you're basically treated like an animal, you know, you're herded through, through the whole operations as, as an animal, like a, a, a herd of cattle, um, you know, so that's a real, real big wake up call. Um, and then, you know, it really starts to set in that, you know, I am surrounded by, you know, murderers and, and rapists and, and violent offenders and gang leaders and, and everything like that. And it's, you know, it's a real shock of reality. And, you know, you got to decide how to maneuver the system to, you know, basically to survive. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and, you know, exaggerate like, uh, you know, what went on in prison for myself. Um, like it was, uh, you know, a real... I mean, it was a terrible experience, but my my prison time was really smooth, to be honest. Um, but it's because I was able to connect with a lot of people because of athletics uh, and because of gambling. I have a gambling background as well. Obviously, it was a big sports better, as as it talks about in the, in the article. Um, so that's a, a connection I was able to make with a lot of people, a lot of important people, a lot of the right people um, that made my time smooth. But it's still... You know, it doesn't change the fact that I had to take on a different persona to, sur to, sur to survive this time. You know, I, at the core of it, you know, I'm, I'm like a lot, a lot of probably listeners out here. You know, I grew up in the suburbs, went to private school, went to college, got a degree, got into, you know, professional baseball and everything, kind of did everything right in life. You know, so there's a lot of people out there that are probably imagining like, hey, you know, they could never wind up in my situation, you know, and. You know, eight years ago, I would have said the same thing. I could never wind up in my situation in a, in a state of Ohio prison surrounded by these types of people, um, you know, but I committed one crime that I didn't think could, could put me in that situation necessarily, and it did. So, you know, I really had to change a lot about how I, you know, I don't want to say how I acted, but how I carried myself uh, and the persona I took on to survive in this environment and, and you know, survive and thrive and and be okay totally man i can uh i just can imagine what it was like through there and you did mention um your, your sports gambling background and so forth but before i even ask you that question cliff i just wanted to kind of get your input on what you might have learned because there's a lot of people who look down on you know prisoners because they might be in there for some pretty serious crimes you mentioned murder rape and and yeah but I think there's a lot you can learn from human beings. Is there anything you could say as far as like one of the biggest lessons you learned from, uh, you don't have to mention names, but a, a prisoner, a fellow prisoner that you were incarcerated with during that six years or close to six years, I should say, um, time that you were in there. Is there a life lesson that you learned about about them? Yeah, you know, I, I don't even know that I'm, I'm going to like mention a specific prisoner, but, you know, the fact that now that it's over and obviously my time, you know, being away from family and friends and everything like that is very difficult, but now that I'm on the tail end of it and I'm done with the experience, you know, I feel like it gives me a very big advantage in life, you know? So I've seen both sides of it. I've seen 
you know, obviously I ran my ran my my crime and, and had money and lived that kind of high end type lifestyle. And I, I've seen the other side of it being in prison. And, you know, what it's done is given me the ability, you know, that I know how to deal with uh, all, all types of people, you know. So, you know, if you haven't experienced that, you know, how how else do you learn how to interact and, and thrive environments with these people? And that's a, you know, that's a, a big, uh, you know, attribute to my character now, I believe is, you know, you don't necessarily shun people like this. There, there's always good people in every environment. So I, was I surrounded by the worst of the worst? Absolutely. Are there good people still put in prison? Absolutely. And you got to be able to distinguish how to, how to find a difference and kind of weed out, you know, the guys that are the bad of the bad and, and, you know, become friends and possibly thrive with, you know, people that are changing their lives are, have good character. You know, our people need to be surrounded by and those people do exist inside. I love to hear that, man. I love it. So you mentioned sports betting. Uh, obviously that's a big piece of it again, go read the article, but yeah, sports gambling is a big piece. It was part of the, the politics inside of prison and kind of how you were able to connect with individuals as well. Um, Sports gambling as a whole, I kind of want to get your thoughts on that. Um, now it's being legalized in a lot of the states, and so it's a little different than probably before you went in <laughs> to, to prison. But back then, I mean, uh, sports gambling, you're, you're out in Nevada, so you could do it at a sports book and so forth. But, I mean, sports betting has been offshore, online at least, has been offshore for quite a while. They had the Bovadas and everything and Bodog, and everyone was getting paid. Either you get a check from the Philippines, you get a check from Canada, you get a check everywhere. You go to, You have to go to a bank and – can't do it through an atm there's a lot of little tricks everybody knows uh what to do the banks know it too how has sports gambling you know shifted from now that you've seen like been in there come out like talk to us about that and do you still like feel like you know now that it's legalized across the u.s like are you still comfortable sports betting and is that something that you're allowed to do even um as a fellow i don't even know how that works for for someone who's had to do time uh, yeah, so I mean, we'll just start there you know i really have no restrictions as far as uh you know anything i do but you look at my prosecution and uh, nobody's still really around that prosecuted my case. The prosecutor was fired for prosecutorial misconduct. The detective resigned amid sexual allegations. The FBI agent committed suicide. Um, so there's really nobody left that prosecuted my case that really even probably cares what's going on at this point. But you know, I have no restrictions regarding that. I'm also proud to say uh, that right now um, and you know, indefinitely, I feel like uh, I'm no longer gambling. So I'm not sports betting. I'm not gambling on anything right now. It's a transition I've made uh, in my life at the moment. And I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, I, I will never bet on sports again. But right now it's not part of my life. There's too many other things going on. But uh, it's really the sports betting realm is a is a weird world out here right now. Obviously, when I went in, um, I remember seeing the news come across on ESPN that the Supreme Court overturned the ruling. I guess this was probably back in 2017, I believe. Um, and it's really became uh, the Wild West from, from what I see. And there's a lot of things available that weren't available before, like player props and in-game betting and same-game parlays. And it's it's a crazy world. It's definitely a crazy world, especially with the companies that are involved, like DraftKings and everything like that. And it's, uh, it's a weird industry right now, to be honest. It's super weird. And the reason I want, I'm, I'm intrigued by your opinion here is because I used to gamble quite a bit. Sports betting was a big piece of my life. I actually gave up gambling as a whole about three years ago. Uh, that's just a personal decision for me. It's not like I never got in trouble or nothing, um, but I just needed to make a personal decision since, you know, I had a family and kids and I kind of want to just do that. So I teach their own on whatever they do. It's not nothing there, but I just didn't, I chose not to, but I always have been intrigued 
by like now that it's like becoming more and more and you said the wild west like there's a lot going on do you feel that that might influence sports in a negative way because you hear about the referees you know we got the referee who was put into prison did his thing he got in trouble for betting on games back in the day and like uh, and he he spills the beans about a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of arguments about whether or not his his stuff is fabricated or if it's actually authentic what he's saying. But I mean, he wrote a book about it. Do you think that sports gambling, especially now that it's legal legalized in a lot of areas, uh, can impact sports in the wrong ways? Do you think people are getting paid, refs are getting paid? Do you think that it can have a negative impact on the sports world? I mean, you know, it's it's hard to say because. You know, I don't know how much worse it could get because it's probably always happened throughout yeah. history, you know. So, um, to me, it's not so much the referees. It's, you know, there's always kids that can probably be had along the way. Um, so, there, there's always thoughts of that and, you know, co collegiate scandals and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, it's probably hard to ever kind of really have it come to fruition and find out what is or isn't going on. You know, there's always kind of looks like fishy things that go on, but – you know, Vegas and sports books and everything, they're, you know, they're, they're not out there because they lose. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's just the nature of it. But yeah, just it, it opening it up to the country is just a, you know, it's really become, I mean, like I said, it's become the wild west and there's a lot of crazy, crazy things going on. And there's so many more options of how to bet on games that there's, there's so many ways that it could be influenced to where, you know, how does anyone even really find out? I mean, you literally can bet bet on anything now, player props, anything like that. So, you know, you get to get to a kid in college and pay him under the table for a player prop. And, you know, before, you know, there's red flags because you're going to 10 different casinos in Vegas dropping money on the same game. Well, now there's how many sports books across the country and different companies that are operating and, and not to mention, you know, local bookies and, and everything like that. And if you're betting some obscure player prop, you know, how do you even know for real? So yeah, it's uh it's, it's a crazy industry. So uh, and and I'm I'm okay not being part of it at the moment. So <laughs> no, for real. Uh, I, I'm in the same boat there. So that's it's it's funny that you say all those things. And I, I love it. Now, Cliff, having the sports background, professional baseball background, you know, you you had a business that you were running, you know, go to prison. You come out of it now here on the on the tail end of that whole thing. What's next for Cliff Panizic? Yeah, so I mean to be honest, right now you're you're kind of looking at it. I'm I'm pretty uh pretty excited to get out here and, and tell my story. Um, you know, I want to use my platform to you know eventually get back into baseball. You know, to me, the biggest thing I can give back to society uh is my professional baseball expertise and training. And you know, it's not a career I want to pursue. That looks a little bit different than, you know, trying to be able to just do some volunteer stuff on the side. And there is already some stuff in the works with some other creators on TikTok to run some baseball camps and, and things like that. And that's really how I want to get back. But at the moment, you know, this this is my platform. My story is my platform. Sports Illustrated uh, kind of gave me the platform. And I got a lot going on in the ways of that. As you know, I, I did sign a, a long form podcast deal that will be coming out in probably October or November with a couple of. Uh, podcast companies here in Ohio, the amazing podcast company in Wessler Media. Uh, in addition to that, I signed a book deal and there's a Netflix documentary that'll be coming out uh, that really bases around the autograph memorabilia industry. Um, but I'll have an episode in that that'll come out probably summer 2023. So right now I'm just focused on getting home, getting with my family, uh, trying to impact some people along the way. 
you know, and really using my platform to tell my story and hopefully motivate and inspire some people along the way. Heck yeah, man. We're rooting for you, brother. So uh, last question I have for you completely for this before we find out where to find you and, and, and see all those things. And, and I'm going to encourage everybody. I'm going to be waiting for it for podcast books, uh, Netflix, everything in between. I'll be following you on social media so I can see more about when those come out. But I do have one question. Sports, baseball, what is the biggest life lesson that you have taken from your experience competing in the sport of baseball through your whole entire life now? What was the biggest life lesson that you've had that you were able to take with you with throughout all of your journey? Uh, it's it's so it's so crazy to say because it's hard to even convince myself to agree with it, but it's that it's that baseball is not the end all be all. You got to have a backup plan. So, you know, at age five till age you know whatever twenty six when I retired, the only thing I wanted to do in life was play baseball. So when that fell apart, you know, through my injury and everything like that, you know, that's really what conspired to make this crime happen. So. You know, when I lose baseball in my life, what fulfills baseball? You know, so a lot of it has to do with, you know, a, as an athlete, you know, I think part of the desire of being an athlete is being the center of attention, having fans watch you. Um, that's a, a huge desire in it. And when that leaves, you know, how do you replace the feeling of hitting a home run in front of 10,000 fans? You know, so for to me, that was committing this crime, having money, you know, partying, going out with an entourage, living the Las Vegas nightlife scene. Um, but it's really because I had no other plans. You know, so, you know, you could say that that's probably what pushed me to get to, to professional baseball is that I had no backup plan. You know, but when my body failed me, you know, what what was left? So, you know, really, it's it's all all just just about being prepared in life for, you know, what's what's potentially after athletics. So the reality of it is. You know, most people aren't making it into professional sports, even a lot to do, like at my level, you know, there's no financial gain to be had in minor league baseball. You know, it's, it's more of a strain than anything. So what is the next step after that? You know, I, I played till the wheels fell off. I would encourage anybody else to play till the wheels fell off, but you got to have a backup plan of some sort for what's going to come after baseball. Totally, man. I appreciate the insight there. Cliff, where can we find you, man? Where can people find your story? Tell us all about it. Right, so check me out on TikTok. It's uh, at Cliff Panazich, or you can find me at Life After Prison, both on TikTok. Instagram is at C Panazich. That's C-P-A-N-E-Z-I-C-H. It's my last name. Those are my two main platforms right now. I'll be getting on YouTube here shortly. And uh, like I said, the podcast is going to be released everywhere, anywhere you can find podcasts. And uh, hopefully the book's out here before the end of the year. So, Heck yeah. Again, I'll encourage everybody. I'll put the links here in the description. But again, like he just said, follow him on TikTok and Instagram. Follow him on his Follow him on his platforms, and you'll find out more about when all those other things are coming out too. But he's got good stuff. He's you're a great content creator. I love how you you know answer questions to the people that are always commenting and so forth. I've learned a lot from you. So go follow him on his stuff. Uh, we've got the links here in the description. And I just want to say one more time, Cliff, thank you so much for joining the Game Time Guru podcast, my man. No, I appreciate you having me on. Truly, I appreciate it. Absolutely, brother. For all those listening, again, remember, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you thought of the uh, interview, and we'll be coming to you next week with another one. Take care. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.